I think to get started, it might be helpful to do a quick recap of where we've been so far. Because Paul, in this letter that he wrote to the Roman church, he's building an argument, and he is making some really amazing claims that build on top of each other. So before we actually jump into Romans 8, I just want to review where we've been so far. Paul has made the claim in this letter that all humanity, Israel and everybody outside of Israel, is trapped in sin and in need of rescue. And that rescue would not come through obedience to the Torah or the law of Moses, but rather God's righteousness sent Jesus to be our rescuer. And that through his life and death and resurrection, we are justified and we are brought into God's family. And that Jesus actually creates a new humanity. He shows us a new way to be human. And we do that through our union with Jesus by putting to death the old self, the old way of living and embracing our identity as a new creation through our union with Christ. But then last week in chapter 7, Scott did an amazing job of unpacking kind of the battle within. Paul reckons with the reality that even though we are new creations in Christ and our desire is to know Jesus and to follow his ways and be in his will, there's like a tug of war in our heart. Sin is also right there at the door, and we experience that internal battle. And Romans 8 is almost like the solution to all of that. Romans 8 is about living life in the Spirit. I think in the chapter of Romans chapter 8, I think the Spirit is mentioned 17 times. I counted, but then I forgot to write it on my notes, and I, I think it's 17, but you can count for yourself if you want to double check it. 17 times the Spirit is mentioned. Romans 8 is about pursuing life in the Spirit. I titled today's message, Be Free, Pursuing Life in the Spirit, because that's what it's about. That's what we're going to talk about. But before we actually read out of Romans 8, I think we need to take just a few minutes to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit or think about the Holy Spirit, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as only being active post-resurrection, right? But the reality is that the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God represented in three different persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed together in perfect harmony from before the foundations of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in our Bible, in verse 2, we're told that the Spirit hovered over the water before creation. The Spirit was active throughout the Old Testament. God would put His Spirit on specific people for specific purposes, but access to God's presence was limited. If you are familiar with the Hebrew Bible, with the Old Testament, then you will remember that God actually chose Israel to be his people in order to bring a blessing to all the nations. And he chose to dwell with his people, to live among them. And he gave Moses a blueprint, some instructions for building the tabernacle that was later replaced by the temple. And this place, the tabernacle, was where the Spirit of God dwelt with his people. There was an inner room in the tabernacle and in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And this was like the hot seat of God's presence. But access to this space was limited. In the Old Testament, only the high priest and only once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement 
for the people. But the leaders and the prophets in the Old Testament, they actually looked forward to the day that God would pour out his spirit on all people. They recognized that that was where we were headed and they longed to see that come to fruition. So this is the scene that Jesus enters on. This is the understanding that the people had of the spirit of God, of the presence of God. And then Jesus in his public ministry spent three years teaching and sharing with people, showing people who God is and what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like. And just before Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, we have a record in the gospels of kind of like his final words, the most important things that he wanted to just burn into the hearts and minds of the disciples. And Jesus uses some of this time, it's recorded for us in the gospel of John, to tell the disciples about the spirit and the new way that they would interact with the spirit. So I want us to read a few verses. We're going to be in John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 16 to 20 and then 25 to 26. This is Jesus instructing the disciples about the spirit who would come. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. After a little while, the world no longer is going to see me, but you are going to see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I in you. So Jesus tells the disciples, just pause there for a second. He will dwell in you. I've been with you and he will be in you. And it's through the spirit that Jesus is in the father and that we are in him and he is in us. That is through the spirit. And then he goes on in verse 25 and 26 and says, these things I have spoken to you while remaining with you, but the helper, the Holy spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I've said to you. Okay. So we're building our understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit. After this, Jesus was arrested. He was tried. He was crucified. He was buried. And three days later, he was raised back to life. And after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days appearing to the disciples and to large groups of people. He continued to teach them. He continued to engage with them. And just before his ascension back to the Father, Jesus told the disciples, listen, I'm going to go you guys hang out here in Jerusalem and wait for the spirit. And the disciples still not fully understanding what Jesus had accomplished through his death and resurrection. were like, okay, cool. So your back is now the time that you're going to restore your kingdom. In other words, are you going to overthrow Rome so that they don't oppress us any longer? And Jesus responds, and I want to read your, his response because it gives us even more insight into the person of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Jesus responded to them and said, It is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. 
So not only is the spirit going to reside in us and going to remind us of everything that Jesus said and teach us all things, but the spirit is also going to empower us to be his witnesses. That's what he told the disciples. And then Jesus ascended back to heaven. So the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They remained in Jerusalem. And the time that this was taking place was actually an annual Jewish festival. We call it the day of Pentecost. It was the festival of weeks. And so what happened during this festival is that Jews that were not living in Israel, Jews that were raised other places, that spoke other languages, would actually travel back to Jerusalem to worship, to take part in this festival, in this celebration. So all the disciples are in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people, but who speak other languages present in Jerusalem. We're going to pick up the story again in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Okay, when we read that, if you don't have a context for what's happening here, it's like, I'm sorry, what? A rushing wind and tongues of fire. But to the Jewish mind that was saturated with the scriptures of the Old Testament, This is very, very clear symbolism for God's presence. If you think back into the Old Testament stories and scriptures, then you will notice that oftentimes God's presence, God's spirit was represented with wind, with fire, right? Think about the tabernacle. Think about the cloud of glory that would hover over the tabernacle in the wilderness. So for the disciples, they are now seeing these tongues of fire not contained in the tabernacle or in the temple, but residing over each one of them. Something new was happening here. And then as the Spirit was poured out on them, they began speaking in different tongues. If you go on to read the story, what this means is that they were actually speaking in languages that they did not know, but that were actual languages of the Jewish people who had traveled to Jerusalem to worship. And so all of these Jews were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language through the power of the Spirit. And tons of people came to know Jesus this day. This was the turning point. This was a new way of interacting with the Spirit of God. No longer was God's presence limited to the Holy of Holies, but it had been blown wide open, full and free access through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is really, really important to us as we jump into Romans 8, because as we talk about living life in the Spirit, we need to understand, one, who the Spirit is, and two, that the only reason we are able to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, is because He lives in us. Every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus, the Spirit resides in you. And in Paul's letter to actually the Corinthians, a different church, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, Paul writes that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the spirit of the Lord is in you and in me. And so my question for us as we jump into Romans 8 is, are you free? Are you walking in freedom? With all of that set up, We're ready to jump into our text for today. 
Let's look at Romans 8. We're going to start just with verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's good news, right? Before we go any further, do you notice the first word there? What is it? It's gone that. Yes, there it is. Therefore. Therefore is a word that is linking an idea that Paul just finished explaining to the conclusion that he's come to. So I think it's important for us to back up just a little bit and look at the end of chapter 7. This is what Paul just finished saying. This is verse 24 if you're taking notes. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And the conclusion he comes to is therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a permanent status. This freedom from condemnation, because we are free from condemnation. It's a permanent status. It is not dependent on our circumstances. It's not dependent on our decisions or on our failings. It is completely dependent on the finished work of Jesus. So often, Christians get caught on the hamster wheel of what Tim Keller calls daisy theology, where we're like, okay, I've repented. I'm doing good. Behavior checklist is going great. He loves me. And then we fail. He loves me not. And then we repent and we change our ways and we're back here and he loves me. But then we give in to temptation and it's like he loves me not. Paul is saying, no, get off the hamster wheel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's conviction, there are consequences, but there is no condemnation. Are you living in that freedom? Or is there an area in your life, is there a sin that you are struggling with? that you are hiding in the darkness, where you are actually still living under condemnation, even though you have been set free. But let me tell you what I know. Sin loves the darkness and sin loves isolation. If you can remain hiding in the darkness, afraid to bring your struggle out into the light, you may remain under the cloud of condemnation that you have no reason to continue living in. Bring it out into the light. Jesus already knows it. Lay it before him. Invite somebody that you trust into your struggle who can remind you that you are free from condemnation. I'm reminded of um, the account that we have in the Gospel of John in chapter 8 where the Pharisees, they catch a woman. It says in the very act of committing adultery. How that happened exactly, I would really like to know, but that is not included in the scriptures. But one way or another, she is caught in the act of adultery. No mention is made of the man. I would also like to have a conversation about that. But leave that as it is for now. This woman is brought to the temple by the Pharisees, and Jesus is at the temple. And the Pharisees bring her in, and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What do you say we should do with a woman such as this? Because the law of Moses says that we should stone her. And Jesus just quietly and calmly says, 
Okay. Those of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then he bends down on the ground and he begins writing something in the sand. We don't know what. And one by one, the Pharisees walk away till nobody is left standing there except for the woman and Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no, they're all gone. And Jesus looks at her. I can imagine the love in his eyes. He does not see an adulterous woman. That's what we know her as. Even today, when we recount this story, we refer to her as the adulterous woman. But Jesus looked at her and said, you're not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your struggle. Instead, he said, neither do I condemn you with love in his eyes. And then he set her free and said, go and sin no more. The way that Jesus interacted with her is the way that he interacts with you and with me. So be free from condemnation. You are no longer required to live in a prison that Jesus has set you free from. The second thing that we see in these verses is that we are free to pursue the things of the spirit and we are free from the obligations of the flesh. We're going to look at this in two parts. First of all, we're free to pursue the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who are in accord with the flesh, or in other translations, those who walk in the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The spirit actually transforms our desires. If we were to continue reading into verse 7, Paul writes that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. But there is a miraculous work that takes place when we begin to follow Jesus, that the spirit actually changes our desires. The seat of our passions and our loves are transformed by the spirit. And not only does he transform our desires, but he actually empowers us to begin to pursue the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? There's probably so many different ways that we could answer that. But what comes to my mind is uh, Galatians chapter 5. Paul is writing to another church, but about the same thing, about living life in the Spirit. And he summarizes what a life lived in the Spirit looks like. He summarizes what a life lived in the Spirit produces. And it looks like love. And it looks like joy and peace and patience It looks like kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Are those the markers of your life and of my life? In Philippians 4, Paul says to set your mind on what is true and honorable and lovely and excellent and commendable and praiseworthy. These are the things of the Spirit. And we are free to pursue the things of the Spirit. And as we do that, our life is transformed. But not only are we free to turn towards the things of the Spirit, we're actually free to turn away from the things of the, spl- of the flesh. The Spirit enables us to see the things of the flesh as what they really are. 
Romans 12 and 13, chapter 8 says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living accord, in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When we read verse 12, if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. Sometimes I think we read it and what we hear is God's going to get you. If you live according to the flesh, God's going to get you. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying because he just finished telling us that there is no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. I think what Paul is saying is that the way of the flesh leads to destruction. I'm a real estate agent, and so part of my job is to show houses to people when they are interested in buying a house. And a a long time ago, I was showing a house in an area that I wasn't very familiar with, and I was running late. Not a good combination. So I put the address of the house that I was trying to go to into my Google Maps. But you know how when you put in an address, addresses populate that you can choose from? Well, because I was in a hurry, I clicked on the first thing that popped up and started following my map's directions. And I got there and realized this is not the house I'm supposed to be at. This house is not for sale. This is a problem. But the problem was not with my map. My map just took me to the address that I put into the map, right? The problem was that I put in the wrong destination. If you live according to the flesh, you are on the path to destruction. That's where you're going to end up. Not because God wants to get you, but because that is the end result of a life lived according to the flesh. But what we're told here is that we are free from the obligation to the flesh. We no longer have to live that way. I think there's really something to what we are turning toward, life in the spirit, and what we are turning away from, life in the flesh. Now, when we talk about life in the flesh, here's what I think comes to most of our minds. It's like the big things, right? You begin following Jesus, you're probably going to stop sleeping around. You're probably going to stop consuming pornography. You're probably going to try to stop dealing dishonestly at work or being unfaithful to your spouse, right? Those are like the big things that we think of that we're like, well, I know that those things will lead to destruction, But here's what I want you to consider and what I was really convicted about this week. What about the quieter, more private things of the flesh? I was having a bad week this week. I just was. And I was feeling very resentful. I was feeling taken advantage of. I was feeling like nobody appreciated me. And I was like tattletaling to Jesus about this. Do you guys do this? Like, did you see that, Jesus? Did you see what that person just said to me? Did you see what just happened to me? And as I was talking through this with the Lord, Jesus brought me back to this verse. I have been steeped in Romans chapter eight for the past three weeks, like studying and just like running through these verses over and over and over again. And yet here I was living in accord with the flesh. Sometimes the things of the flesh look like resentment look like bitterness and selfishness and impatience. This morning, are you trapped living according to the flesh, even though you've been set free to pursue life in the spirit? How do you treat your spouse? How do you talk to your kids? Are you generous with the resources that God has given you? Or are you living out of a scarcity mindset? 
Did you put the wrong destination into Google Maps? We are free to pursue life in the spirit and free to turn away from life in the flesh. Last point, we are free to live as children and heirs of God. Let's read Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. When we read these verses, we come to them through our modern day Western perspective. And that's okay because that's who we are. But the original audience would have had a different understanding of adoption. Because in our culture, when we think about adoption, we think about adopting a baby into a family for the purpose of, you know, love and nurture and raising a baby in a family. And that's beautiful and that's applicable. We can definitely draw truths from that analogy. But that is not what the Romans who originally read Paul's words would have thought. Because in ancient Rome, adoption was actually very common, but it looked a lot different and it was for a different purpose. You see, ancient Rome was full of very wealthy and very powerful people. And because of the way Roman culture was set up, family succession was very important. So the only way for you to pass on your wealth, your power, your position, maybe your political ambitions, was through a direct line of succession. So if you were a wealthy politically powerful person in ancient Rome, and you did not have an heir, what would you do? You would adopt, but you wouldn't adopt a baby. You would adopt an adult, usually an adult male. And oftentimes that person was actually someone who was an enslaved person. And there was, this was not just like a a thing done in private, this was a public legal ceremony. So you would actually go and have this legal ceremony. It had a name. It was called the power of the father. And when the power of the father took place, the person who was being adopted, all of their debts, all of their baggage, all of their prior commitments, their entire identity was eradicated And they were given a new name, a new position, a new authority. Everything that belonged to the father who was adopting an heir was now conferred to the heir. So not only did they gain a family, but they also gained an inheritance. So when we read these words of Paul, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, when we have that cultural context that the original audience of this letter would have had, it just kind of opens up the scriptures in a new way. We were not given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. And yet so often I find myself living in fear. 
Maybe fear doesn't look like I'm afraid of something. Maybe fear for you and for me, I know, looks like insecurity. Fear looks like comparison. It looks like perfectionism. It looks like striving for the perfect image, the perfect job, the perfect family. You fill in the blank. But we are not defined by any of those things anymore because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are we children of God, but we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. In Ephesians, Paul writes that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance Can you imagine if on Christmas morning, after you had spent weeks shopping and wrapping gifts and getting them set up under the Christmas tree, can you imagine if your kids came downstairs and looked at the gifts and thought like, oh, they're so pretty, they look so great, and then turned around and left? Like, what a disappointment that would be, right? Like, that's not what you do with a gift. You open it, you use it. And part of the delight for us as parents is watching our kids enjoy the gifts, right? Why would we leave our gifts unopened? Why would we not step in to the inheritance that is ours through the Spirit? We are free to find our identity as children of God, and we are free to rise up to our inheritance, to open the gifts that God has given us. Not only are we free to do it, but when we step into that identity, God is working in you and in me. He is using us in this particular time, in this particular place, in your cultural context, in your work context, in your family context. Step into the gifts. Begin walking in the freedom that belongs to us and watch what God does. Watch how you flourish and how the people around you flourish. We were made to be free, to live life in the Spirit, Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So again, I ask, are you free? Maybe for some of you today, you're recognizing that you have never actually walked in to the invitation of Jesus. Maybe you're realizing that even though you've believed the gospel, you have stopped short of fully embracing the freedom that is yours to pick up and walk in. I don't want you to hear me say that the things that wrap up our hearts in knots, the the trauma or the difficulty or the hardship that we've experienced in life, either from decisions we've made ourselves or things that we had no control of, I don't want you to hear me say that you can just snap your finger or rub the genie in a bottle and be free without any effort. I understand that there are things that take time to unravel that sometimes we need to find healing in community, through counseling, through time. I am not discounting any of that. But what I am saying is that you can spend your entire life reading all the self-help books or theology books, seeking out counseling, seeking out community, and you can remain imprisoned unless you come to the one who purchased your freedom unless you come to the one that has the power to set you truly free. And the invitation is to begin today. Start where you're at right now. 
Ask the questions, where are you not living in freedom? And step in to that freedom through the spirit that resides in you and in me. I want to read one more verse to you out of the book of Ephesians. This was Paul writing again to another group of people. Such beautiful words. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation. You believed in Christ and God put his stamp of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. The Spirit is the guarantee, the guarantee that we shall receive what God has promised his people. And this assures us that God will give complete freedom to those who are his. Praise, let us praise his glory. Complete freedom. That is the invitation. So we're going we're gonna to close today in worship. And I invite you to take these next couple of minutes to just kind of take stock in your own heart. Where are you not experiencing freedom? Bring it to the cross and ask Jesus to begin to set you free this morning. Let's worship together. Let's stand. Addiction starts to break. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom. I speak Jesus. Cause your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. stronghold shine through the shadows burn like a fire and I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety to every soul held captive by
chapter 1. Pray with me. Jesus, I ask that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we may know you better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours and you and that we would know your incomparably great power in us who believe. Jesus, let us walk in the freedom that is ours in you. Let us be aware that your very spirit dwells within us, that we are never alone. In our darkest struggles, you are there. We praise your name this morning and we just declare your freedom over us. In Jesus' name, amen.